I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. Staying independent has allowed me to speak freely and to tell the truth, no matter how unpopular, for many years now, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. We have seen over the last few years how deeply compromised big media is and how willing mainstream journalists are to twist the facts and hide the truth to sell a narrative dictated by those in power. I won't ever trade my integrity or my free speech for a paycheck. But that means I need your help. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do. If you appreciate the kinds of conversations we're having at The Same Drugs, please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, where patrons get early access to episodes, exclusive access to full videos, and the opportunity to submit questions to select guests ahead of interviews and streams. Another great way to follow and support my work is on Substack, where subscribers can be sure not to miss a single episode and can keep up with my writing and newsletters. Just head over to www.meganmurphy.ca to subscribe. Finally, you can also support this podcast directly on Spotify by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. Don't forget to also click the follow button while you're there so you don't miss new episodes. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Michael Malice, a Ukrainian-American anarchist, the host of You're Welcome, and the author of The White Pill, A Tale of Good and Evil. Hello, Michael Malice. Thank you so much for joining me on The Same Drugs. I'm so looking forward to talking with you. Because of our initials? (laughs) They are the best initials. Absolutely. (laughs) I didn't even notice that, but thank you for pointing that out. I really appreciate that. (laughs) I like you even more now. (laughs) Um, So I have been... Bean. Well, I actually, oh my <laughs> God, I know every time I talk to Americans, <laughs> they make fun of me. And the first time it was actually, it was Yanis Papas that yeah. made fun of me for doing that. And I didn't even know what he was making fun of me you, for. You, like, I was like, what make, am I doing? <laughs> you should make changing your accent your next project. <laughs> Do I have an accent or is it just that I say certain words? I think that is the Canadian accent that it just, oh. it's like a sleeper cell. It only comes out in certain words and then no one sees it coming and it's really kind of weird. See, I think that I don't have a Canadian accent. I just but, think that there's some words that I say in a Canadian way. But are, is there a Canadian accent that's not just some words? Well, the, the, the joke is, is oat and a boat. And... I thought it's a, a boot more. It depends. I mean, the East Coast, it's the further east you get. Okay. Once you get to New Brunswick, you start to sound really weird. If you're talking to somebody in Ontario, you'll hear it a little bit on certain words. I'm from BC, so I'm from the West okay. Coast, which is why I don't have a Canadian accent. 
West Coast is best coast. <laughs> I mean, it's very beautiful, but I've grown to hate Vancouver a great oh. deal for reasons that are similar, I think, to why people grew to hate places like San Francisco and Los Angeles. And is Seattle. it because of Elizabeth May and those fucked up teeth? <sighs> <laughs> She looks like a parrot. She looks like a parrot fish. What's going on over there? Elizabeth May. I mean, I've never liked her, but it's not just because of Elizabeth May. Um, the rest of them are bad too. Yeah. Uh, all of the uh, politicians. I mean, BC is an NDP province, right. so it's run by beta cuck males. And um, and do you uh, think what's his name? Do you think Jasmeet Singh is? You think Justin Trudeau wasn't just in blackface? He's just doing a Jasmeet Singh impression. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because he got the look down. I think. Well, I don't think they knew each other then, but I think that. I mean, it's it's surprising that that wasn't more offensive. And well, it's Are not that surprised? surprising. It's not, it's, yeah, no one cares. No, it's, it's not all, actually it's offensive. Is my point that yeah. it's like you know he didn't even pretend to be offended by it. Right. Um, yeah. Jasmine. Anyway, but yeah, I mean the BC is. And particularly, have you been to Vancouver before? Sorry, have you been to Vancouver before? <laughs> <laughs> I'm annoyed that I'm even aware of this. I don't even want to know that I'm saying being differently than Americans say. Uh, I have not been. been. I've not been there. Although I, I used to be a big uh, Canadian aficionado. I've watched more Canadian okay. television than most Americans, or virtually all Americans. But then after what's going on in the last three years, I'm ready to like Al-Qaeda, you guys. Like it's a wrap. Yeah, I feel that way too. What Canadian TV were you watching? Uh, all of Degrassi, since Kids of Degrassi Street. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Project I love, Ro I love that show. Project yeah. Roman Canada, both seasons. Top Chef Canada, Kenny versus Spenny, Puppets Who Kill, uh, Drag Race Canada. I think that's the list. Oh, okay. I think you maybe watched more Canadian TV than I did. It's really um, fun. It's like a school play version of American television. What I loved about Degrassi, one thing that I love, well, in retrospect at the time, I don't know that I knew that this was happening because I actually was only allowed to watch like the CBC when I was a kid. We didn't have cable, so I wasn't allowed to access normal TV. So I didn't realize how much different Degrassi yeah. was than American TV shows. In retrospect, I love that they're all so ugly. Like I was just going to say that like Lauren <laughs> Collins is like the hot chick on the, the, the reboot. And I'm like, you look literally like Miss Piggy. It's yeah. really crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's but not like I mean, Canadians we aren't thought ugly they were people, hot. But there's plenty of good looking people in Canada. That's what's so weird. Good looking, but dull. Sure. But hey, listen, if someone's good looking and dull, there's worse things you could be, right? You could be good looking and horrible, like in Hollywood, right? So I'd rather someone be boring than be some kind of demon. I would rather that they be interesting, though. I mean, that's the, fair. Well, no, that's fair. <laughs> I, okay. I mean, if we had to, if we had to choose. Good looking and dull. I think I would choose interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I just know the people in Hollywood are are not dull, but they're not interesting particularly either. They're just horrible people. Yeah. Did you come from L.A.? No, I'm from Brooklyn. Oh, you're from. I'm sorry. Is why that offensive to say that? I don't no. know why I assumed you're from L.A. I think because I feel like maybe you you run in those circles or something like that. What circles? Like skateboarding? <laughs> you know some people that I know who lived in L.A.? <laughs> oh, okay. That's, that's <laughs> the circles. I assume that everybody now living in Austin came from L.A. is what I mean. No, it's a lot of us from all over. I think what Rogan did is he set up a homing device for people who are refugees in their own country. So we all kind of congregated here, like a lot of us. Yeah. So when did you move to Austin? Uh, two summers ago, two Augusts ago. 
And did you, are you, did you notice like a, a drastic change? Do you love it way more than other states like New um, York? I mean, I don't love what New York has become. And it's kind of like watching my kid, my, my kid's corpse being defiled at this point. It's very tough as a, someone who's a lifelong New Yorker. Um, Texas is really surprisingly awesome. I didn't realize how cool like Dallas is. Uh, it's totally under everyone's radar. I spent my birthday there last year, and we had such a blast. Okay. Um, but I, I, I'm loving the Austin is not a big city, so it can't compete with like New York or LA or probably even Chicago. But it certainly is great being like a big fish in a small pond, and being kind of at the epicenter of something that's punching so much above its weight culturally. Yeah. I see Austin as a big city because I'm from Vancouver, which is a small city. So when sure. I go to Austin, I find it like overwhelming as a city. But it's kind of crazy that like it's 10 o'clock and like restaurants aren't open. That to me as a New Yorker is just insane. Oh, yeah. Even like okay. diners aren't a thing here. It's just like that just I, but maybe that's a relic relic of COVID, but COVID, you know what I mean? Maybe they're more beforehand. I the, the last time last or one of the last nights that I was in Austin most recently. I was trying to find somewhere to eat yeah. and I was like starving to death and everything. Like we were getting to places at like 9.45 and they're like, yeah, oh, so sorry. Weird. And I was like, what am I supposed to eat? Like, they this didn't is say crazy. That. They say that in your country. They said, sorry. They <laughs> nice try. You're a liar. You're a liar and a fraud. <laughs> they never said that to you. <laughs> Okay, so there's there's bean, there's sorry. <laughs> I think I say Project. pasta, pasta wrong. I Can think it's the British pasta? way, right? We say pasta because Gordon Ramsay says pasta. Oh, the yeah, pasta's wrong. Oh, come on. It's not possible. It's well, very possible, Gordon. I mean, when people say pasta, I feel like they're, you guys are like trying to sound fancy. How is pasta? So fancy? I think you saying pasta? Yeah. You don't think saying pasta sounds like you're trying to say pasta in a fancy way? No, like it's pasta. It's that's like what I get from that. I get the, an attempt to be pretentious, but that I'm not following. Italian's for not it. a pretentious language. I think French. <laughs> is a pretentious language. I mean, it's like look at Mario. He he's jumping around in sewers. It's not. There's no pretension there. He's a plumber. <laughs> I don't know why I think that. Then that's the impression that I've always gotten. I'm like, okay, come on, it's just pasta, just like it's bean. Bean bean makes sense to say, you know, in. Like ween. That does make sense. Win? That's true. Yeah. But yeah. the thing is, pasta sounds like someone from Boston. Because they'll put on their winter, winter coat, they'll put on their parka, you know, or um, Harvard Yard. Okay. So the, we hate that accent. It's just like the, the lowest form of life in America. Almost. Oh, really? I didn't know like, that. The I don't Boston know accent's really trashy. Okay. I guess I see what you mean. I don't know anyone from Boston. I always kind of liked the Boston accent, but I'm Canadian. So to me, it probably sounded like cool and unique i mean when you're in canada i think a lot of american accents sound kind of cool and unique yeah that's fair but just the, the, the boston accent's not highly regarded here with good reason okay fine i believe you um so i think i mean ha okay but have you noticed about austin or is there a complaint about austin that all the blues are moving to a red state and then ruining it with their blueness that is a broader concern for a lot of people, and I don't think it's an invalid concern. But what I obviously I've only been here for two two years, so I can't speak on that. But you know, you hear this a lot on social media, like, "Oh, you moved to the San Francisco of Texas," but of Texas, right. you can't. Uh, you've been here. There's nothing San Francisco or LA about Austin at all. Uh, there's none of this 
I, I don't feel at all like this is some kind of leftist. It's it's maybe left the center in terms of voting intentions, but this isn't you know a city where it's refugee welcome. There's not that you know what what difference is here. The amount of virtue signaling in Austin with like signs and windows, store windows is like minimal. It's not okay. a thing here, like not like New York or or other places. So this kind of I think um, uh, a boomer fantasy that you see a lot on social media, like well Austin's just a, you know there's you know people using heroin addicts and flashing their genitals at kids. It's not a thing here, like at all. The fact that you could get a gun in two minutes, I think the big difference why Austin might be an outlier as opposed to some other cities is it's unique or rare in that Austin is the state capital as well as the cultural center. So when you have the governor and the state government here, it's very different where in New York, it's Albany and Sacramento and, and California, where there's a disconnect between the state government and the city government. And here, since they're together, uh, it allows Governor Abbott to put, kind of put his thumb down on the city council and what other shenanigans they would otherwise pull. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, I mean, that is that is what I have heard, that thing that you referenced where people are like, Oh, you're going to Austin, like the most woke part of Texas. Yeah, essentially. It's, I, I mean, that might be true, but it's it's hardly woke, like at all. It's very Texas still. Yeah. Well, I don't know about very Texas. It's its own thing, but it's certainly not San Fran Jr. Right. Do you think that it might go that way? No. Uh, I think, uh, especially with uh, state politics being what they are, there is a very conscious intent by some of these governors to create states that are as culturally hostile towards so-called blue state values as possible. So earlier you mentioned that you loved Canadian TV. Yeah. Um, did you ever watch Kids in the Hall? I don't get it. Okay, that wasn't actually my question. That I just no, but I mean, I don't get head. why people find it funny. I don't find it funny at all. Oh, okay. We loved that. I loved that when I was in high school. I don't watch it now, but we thought it was hilarious when we were. Yeah, teenagers. I don't. I don't. I watch it. I'm like, well, how is this funny to people? Like, I don't get it. Okay, maybe it's a Canadian thing. Um, maybe also, they've got a lot of followers, friends, follow, um, fans here for sure. Yeah, I don't know. I really liked it at the time. I'd have to rewatch to decide if I still liked it, but I have fond memories i suppose but what i was really going to ask you was i mean what's what's happening in canada right now that's led you to uh fall out of love um the, the big ones the truckers uh when you have this kind of legislation that was uh put in place to deal with like a 9-11 type event and it's being used against people protesting the state and not people but blue collar union people uh, right. When their kids were explicitly being threatened by the cops, uh, we're going to take your kids. This is Soviet type of stuff. Yeah. Um, the fact that they just vanished and there's not, you know, you know, the claim of media is that, you know, we speak truth to power. We look out for the little guy. And as soon as this is very clearly a David and Goliath situation and they could not be more for Goliath if it was possible. Uh, the fact that Trudeau was reelected with, I think it was like literally the exact same number of seats as the previous election. And he said, well, we have a mandate. Um, the authoritarianism is completely insane. Um, my friend Lauren Chen, her dad had cancer um, diagnosed when this COVID was happening and he couldn't get like any screening while it was going on. So she has to sit there knowing he has cancer growing inside of him, but we're worrying about COVID now. So you have to sit in your ass. And she, one of the reasons I moved from New York is she had this great line. It just really, you know, cause sometimes someone will say like one sentence and like your brain just clicks and she goes, why am I funding my own oppression? Oppression. And I'm like, yeah, holy crap. So they got out of there, thank God. But uh, the stuff that they just seized all the guns, 
these are not mm -hmm. steps that are going toward a liberal civil society uh, that is amenable toward human flourishing, in my opinion. And the most important thing, as I'm sure you're witness to, is this isn't being done over the heads of the citizenry. Like they are standing up and cheering. They can't get enough. Yeah. Uh, so there's no kind of vector to prevent this from violently escalating, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, the fact that Jordan was... has to go to take like sensitivity training. I know. What a joke. I mean, it's, it's not, not a joke. A joke. Yeah. This is extremely disturbing Orwellian yeah. stuff. Yeah, it is. I mean, I like I left Canada during COVID because I was freaked out. Of course, um, yeah. And and not just because of the COVID stuff, but that was obviously what really pushed me to leave because um, I was like, I don't want to get stuck here. Um, and it seemed to be getting worse and it did get worse. But also because the kinds of things that I cover and write about and talk about in my work are all anti-government you know yeah. all of the bills and legislation and policies that i was pushing back against were justin trudeau and the liberal party's policies and i was like i'm not only not gonna be able to work i mean it's hard enough for me to work in this atmosphere as it is like i'm subject to big tech algorithms yeah <laughs> censorship but, you know, Trudeau was also and did successfully push through some of these online regulatory bills that would regulate what Canadians will see online, not technically what you can put online, but what what yeah. will be visible. It's creepy. I, I mean, and people I, I think, think it's fine. So few people push back in Canada. They don't think it's fine. They think it's wonderful. Right. You know, it's not that they're accepting it. It's that they, they can't get enough. And that's what's, uh, to me, just why I've just written off that whole country as someone who's had a lot of fondness for it throughout his life. Yeah, yeah. I was always a fan also. Um, and I mean, so many. So I was listening to your book, actually not reading it. I, I listened to it. Which and, one, The White Pill? Yeah, your newest book, The White Pill. Um, and I just, I thought about Canada a number of times. And... You know, one of one of one of the things I wondered is why don't other people see this? I mean, there was so much about this history that I didn't know. You know, most of it I didn't know, which is a shame, <laughs> um, to say the least. But I wish that everyone would read your book. Um, I mean, it's incredibly important. But you know, these are things that Canadians are going along with things that happened in Russia um, that were horrific. Um, a lot of these practices and these ideas are ones that are being supported by progressive Canadians. Um, you know, the, the just the fact that free speech is not only undervalued, but seen as dangerous. You know, we need to stop free speech because it will endanger the people, right? I think it's way more insidious than that. I think if you're going to start talking about things that are disturbing, it's the complete normalization within the last four years that it's appropriate to take kids from their parents for political reasons mm -hmm. uh, in a huge population of left-wing uh, 
uh, thinkers or or the left wing population. Uh, that is really a to me like probably the most disturbing Rubicon that's being crossed right now in contemporary Western politics. That it's just a given that whether it's for trans stuff, vaccine status, uh, maybe there's something else coming down the pike. That yep, just take the kids from the parents. Uh, that is uh, really unprecedented territory. Do you and that's think, very Soviet. Right. I mean, do you think do you think that Canada is becoming a communist country? Would that be a fair thing to say? No, because I think there's a lot of corporate power in Canada. Uh, and I don't think there's that's going away. I don't think there's this big push toward having um, you know, government run all these different industries. So in that sense, it's I think communism is an on starter. But in terms of authoritarianism, uh, it is a full steam ahead. Uh, there's no pushback at all in any level. Uh, the fact that the universities, which were already radical to begin with, are now in a position, are kind of flexing their muscles. and like, all right, we're done talking. It's time to start implementing these kind of radical ideas and oppressing citizens who go the wrong way, whether it's someone who's highly educated and prestigious like Jordan Peterson, or, or again, a population that's less educated and lower status like the truckers, it doesn't matter if you're in the way of the steamroller, you're getting steamrolled. Um, again, you know, when the, the, the truckers had their protest, the cops explicitly said, you know, hey, if you bring your kids, you're putting them in danger, so we might have to take them from you. The kids were in no danger. The kids were in danger from the cops. You guys are the danger. So when you have this kind of thing of turning parents against their children, um, that to me is almost more dangerous than some kind of free speech situation because technology will somewhat have a workaround. Uh, maybe it's some alternative sites. Maybe you know you have an IP somewhere else. I don't know. These are they're not great solutions. But if someone takes your kid, there's no solution for this. This is irrevocable uh, mm -hmm. and extremely traumatic and and pure evil. Yeah, there was a dad that got, I don't know if you heard about this story, but he was he was thrown in jail actually for refusing to go along with his daughter's transition. Right. Yeah. Um and again, that's something that it, it not only did not he, that story didn't get very much media coverage. Um it certainly didn't get any notable pushback. Um right. people in Canada think that that's okay because he's abusive. Right. Yeah. And that's that's coming here very quickly. Yeah. Do you think that it will come to America? I mean, yes. do you think that it's, even yes. the red I, states? No. But I think uh, this is going to be a matter of months before Gavin Newsom or right. Oregon or Washington state are pushing for something like this. Uh, even just only, not necessarily that they believe it, but as a means to antagonize Republicans or provide a contrast to Republicans. Right. And and there's all these states now who are passing these so-called like sanctuary trans laws mm -hmm. where like, you know, if you and I are married, we have a kid and, you know, our kid decides that they're trans. You can take our kid and go to these states and you can't be like sent back to the, the state where we, where we reside. Like there's no. So it's just legal kidnapping. Uh, it's just if I'm understanding that law correctly, I don't think it's actually been implemented yet in terms of any parents have actually done this. But this is really uh, um, new in terms of social dynamics um, and governments. Act and, and other examples in California, um, a, a buddy of mine and, and um, 
her husband was a psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever the term is. And it's the law in California where if you shift someone from transitioning, you're going to lose your license. You can only double down on their questioning their gender identity. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're, fr- you're friends with Deborah So. Uh, you know, I read her book, End of Gender. Um, and she talks about this, how for a lot of people who identify as transgender, transitioning is the a, a correct re- approach. But for many people, it, it, they do grow out of it or they're like, okay, so I'm an effeminate male or I'm a masculine female or I'm, I, I'm my own thing. Um, but to have someone even consider, you know, live with this for a little bit. This gender is complicated. You're growing up. To even put that on the table, you can't do that in California now without the risk of losing your license and being made a pariah. That to me is, you know, kind of brave new world such kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, Justin Trudeau's government passed a similar law. Um, it was eventually called Bill C4. Um, and it was called a conversion therapy bill because, of course, they're attaching transgenderism to the lesbian and gay rights issue. So conversion therapy is illegal, and the bill framed um, not fully supporting a child's desire to transition as conversion therapy because, you know, you're trying to make him or her cis. Don't you love um, so the, that the, is illegal? The, yeah. Don't you love the Orwellianism that transition is good, but conversion is bad? Like these are synonymous <laughs> terms, but it's just like one is the devil and one is the side of the angels. It's, it's, it's. I mean, it is very hard to. You just, you just got to feel for all these dads, because I think there's this. Um, the left doesn't like the idea that human beings respond to incentives, and often in very dark ways. Uh, they'll be more than happy to be that prison guard of the concentration camp because then they get to be a big shot. Uh, this is just part of the human experience that I think all, we all have to, to deal with. The fact that having a trans kid for white urban liberal females is like winning the lottery uh, is really a problem. Um, and mm-hmm. if m- mom has in her head that her kid is now top of the heap at the school, it's like being valedictorian, you know, God help dad. If he's like, well, let's hold on a minute. You know, he, just because he likes pink and plays with dolls doesn't mean he's a female. It just means that, you know, we had sissies growing up. What's the big deal? Uh, so this is stuff I'm extremely concerned about. Yeah, it's totally terrifying. And I mean, I, yeah, I did want to talk a little bit more about the convoy just because it was it was so strange to me because when that happened, I was living in Mexico. I wasn't even in Canada, but I was following the whole thing. I knew people that were involved. I interviewed people that were involved. I watched videos of these rallies and protests. These white, these white supremacists. These Nazi rallies happening across Canada. All these the very di- the most diverse Nazi rallies we've ever seen. And the most like joyful people who are like making hot dogs and there's a bouncy castle and everybody's singing and dancing. Um, And what we saw in the media and then what my leftists and progressive friends, you know, most of my friends that I left back in Vancouver are progressives. Um, And what they would tell me about what the convoy was and who these people were and what was happening did not at all match not only with what I'd read about and these people that I talked to who are involved, but what I saw with my eyes in, you know, there's tons of footage. It wasn't, it's not like it was hard to find footage of these rallies and protests and there wasn't any violence anywhere. Um, Never mind. I didn't, you know, see any Nazis either, but 
this was this is this is still the narrative to this day you know and and these people think that i'm kind of stupid like i had a conversation with this uh guy who visited from vancouver about it and he was like Oh, those, yeah, those were all a bunch of racists. And I was like, no, they weren't. You know, I know people that were involved. I saw what was going on. These were total, these were really diverse Canadians. Um, it was a completely peaceful protest. These were just regular people. And he scoffed at me as though I was like a gullible idiot. You know, well, he well, called I, me naive for well, believing I, this. In his defense, he's right because racist just means outgroup. So in contemporary discourse, racism doesn't have any kind of meaning other than it's them as opposed to right. us and we're the good guys. So right. I, I'm sure you saw when um, Larry Elder was running for California governor, the LA Times, I believe, had the headline that he's the black face of white supremacy. So if you have white supremacy that's so pernicious that even black people get on board, it kind of is like, well, what is the issue here if it's going to encourage black people to succeed and achieve and, and become elected the highest office in, in this state? So they don't use language literally, they just use it as a means of manipulation. And I think once people understand that, you get a lot less frustrated because from his perspective, they are racist because they're bad guys. And that's what racist means, not okay. us. I see what you mean. Um, I mean, I guess I, I wonder- Because they if... weren't, I'm sorry, just one more thing. It's that yeah. they, they weren't talking about race at all. Right. So no. it's, it, it, it was, a, it was no, there wasn't even, there's no dog whistles. There's no coded language. They're not talking about affirmative action. They're not talking about immigration, like things that you can make a case. Okay. These are rooted in racism, right? None of that, none of these issues that disproportionately affect races. So the fact that race wasn't even discussed and he could say with a straight face, they're racist just speaks to the psychology and how they use language. Do you think that people who believe themselves to be communists or who identify as Marxists or who identify as socialists really understand what that means. And I ask you that question because I once identified as a Marxist and for most of my life I identified as a socialist, but I didn't really understand. It's, I mean, it's embarrassing to say, but it's true. So whatever. I didn't really understand what ha actually happened under communist regimes. Well, there's a lot of um, anti-USSR Trotskyite Marxists, communists. So they would agree that, you know, Stalin, they call it a degenerated worker state, I believe, that Stalin, you know, uh, uh, Trotsky's book was called The Revolution Betrayed. He's in his, he died in Mexico. Uh, you can still see the house where he was murdered yeah, by Stalin. So, yeah it's, yeah, it's really cool. I yeah, haven't been, but cool. I, I look forward to. Yeah. But um, I, I don't, first of all, I don't think the terms socialism and communism are synonymous at all. Um, I think there is there's a big myth among conservatives that socialism is a slippery slope and then it becomes communist. That's never happened other than Venezuela. Communism has always been implemented by a coup or some kind of violent overthrow of the state. So if you see countries that are heavily socialized, France, like Western, the Nordic countries, in many cases, they did push back and return to more free market uh, situations that even happened in Canada, where it was um, when you're on the left, like Pierre Trudeau, uh, he had um, he cut the budget in, in certain ways and he kind of pulled back on the state. So when you're on the left and there's no one to your left, you're actually more positioned politically to have a free hand to do things that otherwise would be considered conservative or right of center. Bill Clinton was another example of being forced to balance the budget by the Republican Congress. Um, I don't think that, I think a lot of, it depends. I think a lot of people use that term communist 
to be like, well, I just have a radical contempt for the status quo. So that impulse is itself healthy. And it's also a great way to piss off mom and dad. Um, and it's also a great way to feel a sense of community, especially among other young people. You know, this is something we have together. And they're very big, overwhelmingly, I don't have the statistics, uh, in regarding the Soviet Union as not their model. Uh, you know, they, they, that was not communism done, right? They'll make apologetics for communism, for the Soviet Union, in the sense of like, well, they're reacting to a lot of what the West and the capitalist countries are doing, and they didn't really have a choice and all that other good stuff. But I don't think these terms are well um, understood, but I also think they're, they're not particularly well-defined. I mean, socialists can mean, you know, so many different things. Um, and it's just more like, I like this guy as opposed to I like that guy sometimes. Yeah. So what does communism mean? What's communism? Well, there's different kinds of communism, of course. There's the Emma Goldman, Alexander Berkman, you know, uh, anarchist communism. And then there's the Stalinist Bolshevik kind of communism where everything is a function of the state and the state, you know, is basically as synonymous with the part with the country as possible. Uh, the communist, the anarchist version is more this idea of, you know, everyone working together in a society through mutual aid um, and mutual dependence to kind of make sure no one's left behind and to thrive in that context. So, you know, there's a lot of, and there's a lot of versions of communism before Marx. I mean, it's, he didn't invent it. He was just one of many who kind of, uh, and his version was the most successful in terms of, the, in terms of its implementation. But there were a lot of other strands um, throughout the, uh, the decades. And I think what happened in 1917 when Lenin and Trotsky took over in Russia and what became the Soviet Union, all these different branches of the radical left were like, all right, this is our one shot to make this thing really happen. Like we've all been talking about this for like maybe a century. Now we can do it. Like we all have to put all our money, all, all our eggs in this basket because time for talk is over. Like we got to figure this out and make it work. And I think over the decades, increasing numbers of leftists, you know, there were different moments where they're like, all right, I'm out. It's like poker, you know, you have the poker table and, you know, after one round, so a few people drop out, then people kept dropping out. And I think the, the big one, of course, probably was the Molotov rip and drop pact uh, when you have Stalin and Hitler's men shaking hands for a lot of communists at that point, they're like, okay, okay. Like I, I was with you until you're shaking hands with the Nazis. And now like, I still hate capitalism. I still hate the right. I think they're terrible, but you lost me, buddy. And, and that was a big moment where the mask dropped, I think for a lot of leftists, understandably. And why do leftists in the West defend? I mean, I think at the time leftists in America defended what was going on in Russia. Oh, and yeah. now leftists defend, you know, People will even defend Stalin by saying, you know, like he did what he had to do to get where he wanted to go to, you know, make yeah, a better yeah. world, which is just like Jefferson Davis, right? Yeah. Um, I, I th one of the reasons I wrote the book is it, as disturbing as what happened in the Soviet Union was, it was even more disturbing how many Western uh, institutions, individuals were promoting and advocating for these sort of sorts of things. And they're still around. You know, it's places like Harvard, Columbia, the New York Times, uh, you know, and other such uh, establishments. And it's this it's a tone that is hauntingly familiar to the tone of today. This kind of arrogant, like, oh, please, you don't you, you stupid idiots. You don't understand. Like we're the enlightened ones. 
we're sophisticated. You just don't get it. But listen to us. Like you, the these are all lies. How bad it is over there. And sure, there's some bad things, but you're gonna have to deal with it. This is the society of the future. You're gonna have to get used to it because this is what's coming. So there's this mix. They they kind of um, straddle um, or toggle. Excuse me. Between uh, this is what is going to happen or this is what should happen. Uh, in you know whatever at the moment if they're trying to be persuasive or manipulative so seeing i was surprised by how explicitly they were defending things like concentration camps and starvation of millions of people uh i i thought they would be like okay this is just you know anti-communist propaganda you can't believe it but they were like well no you you know that quote yeah um you yeah you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs it's like that means starving people it wasn't like oops i dropped 12 eggs yeah yeah some people are gonna have to suffer during the revolution but it's gonna be worth it right and also so it's good that some people are suffering because they're the ones who are keeping everyone down so there is very heavily this element of bloodlust uh death to the outgroup you can't make peace with these people uh they're corrupted from birth by function of their class uh and and you see the glee uh, I mean, and this is not unique to the left at all, but there's a lot of bloodlust and glee in social media when, when some, you know, when this person dies mm -hmm. or that person dies for whatever reason, uh, people are tripping over themselves to just applaud. Well, and yeah, and I think that one of the most terrifying things about what we saw um, over COVID, the scan, scandemic, whatever you want to call it, um, was that people just like it was so scary because people became so hateful and really... i don't think they became hateful i think they were in, in a position to display their hatefulness hmm. so you think those people were already like that do you do you not i don't know um i guess that's something that i've been trying to figure out no i think weak people and all humans you know i i have a little bit of an evolutionary psychology approach to this that if human beings are in a position to assert status over somebody else, they'll trip over themselves uh, in order to do so. And what COVID did is it gave low status people an opportunity nice. to be, I, I, I put this on my Instagram, I couldn't believe it. New York, this is the early days of COVID. I, I was uh, considered, um, what was the term that they used for us? Um, essential. Uh, so I was, I never, I never locked down. And I, again, if, if you told me this, I would have thought this was a kind of lefty propaganda. I'm on the train. There's like two other, three other guys, four guys, whatever, tiny number. There was an Asian dude. He wasn't like with a rickshaw. He was Western dressed, right? I, I'm, but, but someone else, some, some guy in his 40s got up, was standing over him, screaming at him, like, where are you from? And basically, go back where you came from. This is the kind of thing where in New York, it's just not a thing. New York is extremely diverse. There is a Chinatown in every borough, I believe, maybe not Staten Island. Point being, like, that sort of xenophobia in an actual sense, as opposed to, you know, using it as a euphemism in some media report where someone gets their feelings hurt. Like, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And of course, I filmed it. So it really gave people an excuse that it's okay to yell at. And here, if you're scared of this Asian guy with his disease, why are you going close to him? Right? It, it just it made mm -hmm. no sense on any other level than I am now in a position to yell at this guy and put him in his place. And you know, this Karen behavior became just absolutely normalized and standardized. Um, and I don't think it caused them to have these feelings, but now they were, it was socially not just acceptable, but valorized. 
to like, oh, I, I got this guy fired because he wouldn't wear a mask. Mm -hmm. yeah, or I, I ratted on my neighbors because they had people over for Christmas dinner. They had their family members over for Christmas. Yeah, they had I got three in, people over for, a I don't know, some kind of celebration. Yeah, I got in trouble for this tweet. I didn't get ratioed. I'm Jewish. And I said, if you replace the um, word COVID with Jews, the behavior of the 1930s German population becomes eerily similar. Point being... One of the big questions hand-wringing for decades is how did this happen, right? How is it that the German population, which was a liberal, meaning, you know, uh, open-minded society, became so willing to allow street violence, destruction of stores, kids being persecuted, and then ultimately genocide to happen, right? This is something a lot of people have discussed in many ways over the decades, both in terms of help us understand and to make sure it is prevented again. And we saw during this COVID regime how easy it was to create a population as the out group and Jimmy Kimmel just laughing on TV yeah. that, Oh, you went to the hospital. You're not vaccinated. Well, good luck with that. See you at your funeral. It's just like, this is really dark stuff. And just because he's like in a clown suit and there's a laugh track or a live studio audience rather, uh, that somehow takes the sting out of it. But the, the psychology is identical. Right. I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't really believe that most of these people were actually, afraid of COVID just because that didn't make sense to me as you know maybe at the very beginning but after a, a little while not too long I think that most of us knew that it wasn't a very scary they, virus they were afraid of being heretics and of being the out group they weren't scared of COVID because they were scared of getting COVID and they weren't scared of having COVID because getting COVID was some sort of moral failing because it means you didn't do what we're all supposed to do so what about the people still wearing masks on the plane yeah, I, I, it's it's there's, it's an uptick now. I saw I saw a few. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I I just flew to uh, Cleveland uh, of like last week and just seeing it happen. I was I had to walk through. I think it was Case Western Reserves at Cleveland, and just there's a couple of kids outside wearing masks, which makes no sense. And it's like okay, like um, I I think it's such a very convenient um, in group signal that mm -hmm. like I'm I'm one of the good guys. That of you know it's, it's of course people are going to be tripping over themselves to do it again just to show that they're on the right side of history or so or so to speak. Yeah, I see some on pretty much every flight that I go on. I saw a lot of people in masks at LAX, um, but yeah, I see I, there's at least a few on every flight. Yeah. Less of the the Texas ones, but um, I yeah, I guess I. I see. Do you think that this is all coming back? I mean, do you think that this like, uh, you know, there's been a few reports of mask mandates coming back, the isolation thing, the distancing, the go home, like you can't be at university, you can't be in your dorm if you test positive. I don't even know why people are still getting tested for COVID anyway. I think they're setting it up for the presidential election because they want to have as many excuses to not have to have in-person voting as possible because it works for their voters. So okay. it's just as simple as that. Right. But you don't think that they're bringing it back and that it's Oh, I think they I think of... they might, but I think it's going to be very hard because there's a certain percentage of the population including politicians in in the states who are like none of this is coming back under any circumstances. Like I don't care if there's kids in the street who are dead, too bad. Like we're not doing this the second round because we were lied to so many times. Here's the other thing, like if social distancing was efficacious, why didn't they bring it back during the other waves? And if it wasn't efficacious, why do we do it to begin with? There's no answer for this. 
So it either worked or it didn't. And if it did work, we should have done it a second time. And if it didn't work, we, there, you know, the stickers are still on the floor in many places. Why do we do it the first time? So you don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be right of center, left of center. This is just a logical question. If something works, why wouldn't you do it twice? And if there's no answer to that, you realize, okay, this isn't about social distancing at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my view is that the restrictions and the mandates ended not just in Canada, but in the U.S. because of the truckers. So to me, it was just that enough people stood up and said and no, you, because I don't think it would have gone away otherwise. But I also think it's going to be harder for them to pull off because there was, and I'm sure you and everyone watching this remembers, when this was going on, there was a complete collusion across media and tech companies that there has to be a consistent, coherent narrative, right? And you could steel man this and like, okay, listen, if you're going to have tinfoil hat stuff, this means like a lot of people are going to die. So we really got to get our ducks in a row. Like you can understand that argument. Now, mm. it's an impossibility for them to do that again. At the very least, Twitter, which is one of the biggest social media sites, there's no way Elon is going to have this kind of censorious uh, uh, administration as we saw under Jack Dorsey. And even if we maybe, we also don't know what, what kind of gun he had to his head. Um, from the 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 administrations uh, respectively. So I think that's it's going to be much harder for them to pull off uh, universally than it was the first time. And also you saw what happened in Great Britain where you know they were publicly saying, oh, this is terrible and then Boris Johnson and all his people are basically having coke orgies at number 10. So <laughs> it's just like, all right, like you guys obviously didn't think this was a big deal. so it's it's a wrap the second time around. yeah i I always wonder why um, People, I mean, I wonder why people read 1984 and they don't seem to recall what they learned in 1984. Like I re I reread 1984 when I first got here to Mexico. Um, I'd read it in like, I think when I was sort of an older teenager, like in at the end of high school or something like that, maybe even be the beginning of college. But I reread it when I got to Mexico, um, which was two and a half years ago. And I just thought this is also obvious. Um, it's also obvious to anybody who's familiar with the history that you write about in in the White Pill. Um, but I feel like people, I, a lot of people don't know, but a lot of people don't seem to make the connection. You know, how yeah. could you read that and how could you know this and then see this coded language around misinformation um, and not be triggered by that or see like, this is just temporary. This is just temporary until we get all of this under control and things are okay. And then we'll, you know, give you back your rights. Okay. You know how, like, if you have a dog or a cat and they're looking at the television, many of them won't perceive it as people or dogs. They'll just perceive it as color, right? Some animals do understand that, it, that it, there's a story there. They could watch it, but some just don't just see it as shapes. Right. Right. I think you underestimate, um, to what extent blue-pilled people are incapable of deductive or critical thought, that they will read a story and just read it as a story. And the idea that this story is going to have any application outside that story makes absolutely no sense to them. They only can perceive information that is provided to them by the people that they trust on their screens, whether it's uh, you know the websites they frequent, YouTube, or the media outlets that they uh, uh, frequent. So they live in this kind of perpetual present and just the concept of reading a book, thinking about it, breaking down its concepts, and then applying it to their own lives or to contemporary society, that's not how the brain works. Like you're, you're asking this dog to watch a movie and it's just like, it's not, the capacity is not there. And we're taught, you know, from a very early age that 
you know, you, we're all basically the same. Sure, some people are taller, some people are smarter, but it's completely fallacious. There is an understanding that human brains are kind of wired differently. Like maybe you're better with your hands in terms of carpentry than me, or maybe I'm better at math, so on and so forth. And it goes as far as that. But in terms of understanding to what extent the vast majority of people are completely incapable and disinterested in critical thought is something that is never brought up. And that kind of, to me, is the explanation for a lot of this behavior. And I always tell people, if you want to understand human beings, don't watch Fox or CNN, watch The Dog Whisperer, because human beings <laughs> and dogs co-evolved. I'm not kidding at all. And if you understand dog behavior, it's exactly identical um, to the behavior of most humans. I'm curious to know if you think that, I mean, just because of what we were talking about earlier in terms of people are not, people are not all made equal. Um, right. And this obviously is relevant to the conversation around communism, particularly with regard to that idea that you shouldn't be particularly attached to your parents, you know, that family doesn't really mean anything, that it could just be anyone and that maybe it's not fair that you were born to these, these parents who are, I don't know, have less than these other yeah. parents in some way or another. And why not just give them to somebody who's better qualified to take care of them? What's the difference? Really? There was an article that I read recently about this too, that essentially said that, you know, being attached to your genetic family is a bourgeois idea. But it's um, also the idea of the estate tax that it's not, the estate tax isn't just a, a, a mechanism for raising funds. It's on principle for these people, a good thing. Cause it's not fair, you know, Megan, that your dad left you a factory and my dad was a drunk. So you're mm -hmm. starting off, you know, so far ahead, you're never going to have to worry about a roof over your head. I'm going to have to struggle. You know, I'm an orphan at 14. So there's some truth to that, but they really want on principle for everyone to start off equally. Well, they're not, everyone can't start off equally rich. So they're going to be starting off equally poor. So this is a, a, a mm -hmm. real thing that was, um, if you got so many people on the left who are in favor of the estate tax, it's not because, okay, it's just a good way to you know make money. It's like, no, no, this is the right thing to do on principle to make sure every kid starts off equally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that made sense to me for a long time. It doesn't not make sense because to me, you know, if you think about it, it's like, how come this person has so much money and right. I don't have as much money? It's not fair. And they right. got it from their family. Right. They didn't even I wasn't born to a rich yeah. family. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Do you, so do you think that the concept of equality in and of itself is bad or the aim of an equal society? I don't think it's a coherent term at all. I think it was Thomas Sowell who made the point that a person is not equal to himself at different points of the day. I'm certainly not equal to what I was eight years ago or eight years in the future. I'm sure you've grown a lot as a person in the last year or two. That's yeah. not even a question. Identical yeah. twins, you know, kick and all of them kick and scream to be like, I'm a different person from my twin. We're not interchangeable even though they are literally genetically identical. So I think equality is uh, kind of um, a disingenuous term uh, used by people who want to further their power. And I'm not for like equality of opportunity. I'm for maximizing opportunity. I want there to be as much opportunity as possible. If you have 10 times as many opportunities as me and I have less, I still want that rather than equally, you know, we're both at 0.5. Right. I do identify as an anarchist. Is that right? Well, yeah, I, I, yeah. I edited the anarchist handbook. Yeah. Yeah. So what does that mean? Anarchism is the idea that you do not speak for me and everything else is application. And Emma Goldman did die in Toronto, by the way. In Toronto? Yeah. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, she was deported from the U.S. and wasn't allowed back. But she's buried in Chicago now. Right. So if okay, so so we know that communism is a bad system. What's we, the this who's is we, this who's we? we? Well, I think based on talk. based on history. So do you not? <laughs> so do you not think that communism will inevitably lead to these kind of anti-democratic regimes? Well. Uh, well, communism is anti-democratic. I yeah. mean, it calls itself democratic, but it's very much in a vanguard at first, and then this kind of party elite running everything. So it claims to speak for the people, but it, 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 I mean, that's really absurdly fallacious. So it's inherently going to end up in sort of like, it's going to be dictatorial in some ways. I don't think it's going to end up. I think it starts there. Okay. You know, it, it's not like there's some little period in between. You know, Lenin, you know, was a dictator from the jump. The the Okrana, the uh, what became? Well, I'm sorry, the Okrana was the Tsar's version. The the secret police. That was like one of the first things he was doing was to make sure to the, you know destroy class enemies and to have everyone you know be spying on one another. Okay, so I think my point is that we can agree that communism is a bad system. <laughs> I, I didn't know if you meant by we because I think oh, a lot okay, of people I don't. I I, I I I met a lot of people do not think this. Well, no, I mean, I didn't used to think this. Okay, yeah. Um, I thought that it would be, a, you know, I wanted to empower the workers. Um, and I thought that that might be a good way to do that. And I wanted people to, I, I didn't want the super rich to exist. I wanted people to be on more equal ground. Well, I, I Can you, what changed your thinking? <sighs> I think just understanding what actually happened in communist regimes. Oh, okay. Wow. That's interesting that you didn't just hand wave it away. No, I actually am interested in learning and it's sort of baffling to me that other people aren't, but I think a lot of people aren't. So I actually enjoy learning new things and I'm not super upset when I change my mind about was things. Was there and a I don't moment where you were like, what the hell was I thinking? No, because I understand what I was thinking. I mean, okay. I find it like... It's, I, it's interesting because it's been sort of beneficial to me because I understand... I understand how Canadian progressives think um, because I was like that. You know, I think I was elitist in my approach and I wasn't a member of the elite. You know, I grew up working class. My dad was a postie, so he was a union guy. So we were big union supporters. So we supported our labor party, which was the NDP. Right. Um, and I thought that, I, you know, I just, I didn't want people to be poor and I didn't think it was necessary. Yep. Um, I wanted people to have access to healthcare. I didn't see there to be any reason for people not to have housing. Um, so I, you know, but I also thought that people who didn't think like me, so people who were right wing, people who were conservative, people who were capitalists, you know, I thought money was sort of an inherent evil. Um, and that, might have just been because I didn't have any, but <laughs> I also, you know, we can obviously see that money corrupts. And also, I'm sure you were a lot better of a person than a lot of these wealthy people, right? And you're like, wait a minute, this person's a, a horrible human being and they're multimillionaire. And my dad, who's a good guy, is struggling. This isn't fair. And th there's a logic to that completely. And because you can't really move out of that. Like, I did understand that you can be kind of trapped by class. Not completely trapped by sure. class. I mean, in America and Canada, you can move from the working class to the middle it, it, class. But it doesn't so help so if forth, you're coming from a low difficult. class. Yeah, absolutely. That's not yeah, a question. Like, if you, don't, if you don't start out with property, it's hard to get property. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something I think do conservatives do a little bit of hand-waving away, which I'm not too comfortable with. Just like, oh, you work hard. It's, it's not that... Working hard is not always... Like, if you're working poor... 
you are working hard. You're like hard work <laughs> is not the issue here at someone who has to have two jobs. That's not the problem. So it's, I, I mean, and it's not always this put yourself through school. Listen, you, you're like a single mom or single dad with a couple of kids. It, it, you know, getting a college degree is not just a matter of like sitting in front of YouTube every day. It's, it's not. So I think they do have a point there, the, the left with, with, with regard to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that their solutions are flawed, but I think, I mean, the putting yourself through school thing is uh, one that frustrates me a lot about in terms of the sort of right wing or anti left approach or however you want to frame it. Because if you're, if you don't have money, like if you don't have, if your parents can't fund your way through school, if you aren't living at home, if you're living on your own and you have to pay your rent and you have to work, it's next to impossible to complete a degree. You know, yeah. I, I had to work full time or I had to work, you know, three different jobs and take night classes and get student loans yeah. <laughs> and get grants, you know, it's very expensive to go to school and it's very expensive to survive. And then, um, you, you know, so to hear these, you, do you, these, did you have any kids? No, no, no. So imagine you had like a kid or like two kids, you I know, guess. it's not, it's not a thing. Yeah. It would be impossible. I don't know how people yeah. would do that. Um, and then if their answer is, well, you should have had a kid. Well, that's not, what is that? Oh, fine. Okay. Maybe you're right. What am I supposed to do? Get a time machine? I mean, I'm glad that I, I don't really like kids, so I'm okay. That, that's fine. But I'm saying if this was a, <laughs> yeah. a, a parallel universe where there was, you know, a Megan with a kid, what is she supposed yeah. to do? Yeah. And I think that, yeah, the way that the right talks about people then who end up in debt, I think is totally unrealistic. And, you know, all they have all these student loan debts and they should have worked their way through school. And it's like, they probably did work their way through school. You know, you can't really, it's very, very difficult in any case. I shouldn't say can't, but it would be I, like, it wasn't possible for me to just work my way. Through I, I'm, school. I, I, I would be so much more in favor of if you're going to have debt relief instead of uh, some student loans where you still have that college degree, which is the most privileged piece of paper you can have. What about like people who have like massive credit card debt and their credit card rates are through the roof because their credit sucks. Like they're the ones who could really use some debt relief and really have a fresh start. Uh, maybe some of them it's going to be moral hazard. They don't deserve it. That's fine. But a lot of them, you know, those credit card debt payments every month, yeah. that's insane. Like yeah. that's who you should, if you're a lefty and I would agree with this completely, though that is number one who should have, loan relief as opposed to someone who has a college degree or even a graduate degree forget it yeah i would agree with you i mean it, it, they make it next to impossible to pay off because of yes. the interest rates but i think i mean i'm trying i was going somewhere with this and you know i think that my so i think that i thought that i was a good person and i wanted justice in this world and i wanted things to be fair and i wanted everybody to be okay and so therefore if people didn't see things my way so if people weren't socialists if people were right-wing or conservative or capitalist or whatever they either didn't get it or they didn't care so right. it's a condescending view i didn't really understand what a right-wing person thought because i didn't know any right-wing people i didn't have and, and, right -wing and they're all friends. racist you know anyone will tell you they're and all, greedy they're all, and, and mean greedy racist, and yeah, evil yeah. and selfish yeah yeah so i think it was like it was beneficial to me that i i i grew up with these kinds of politics and you know had these politics for most of my life because i understand the Canadian progressive and I understand the Canadian left, but it's a, it's of course at the same time still incredibly frustrating to watch because they refuse to change their mind. They refuse to take in new information. They don't seem interested in the truth at all. Facts don't matter them, to them at all, which is so ironic because these are the trust the science people and they have right, no interest in, in reality. They have no interest in the science as it were. 
Right, but there's a whole media apparatus. It's like TV dinners, right? They're they're prepackaged, their ideas, their slogans, and also their sense of validation. So why fight? You know, it's it's just. Do you really want to be that kid in first grade telling everyone that Santa Claus isn't real? Like, what's the upside here? Like, maybe you're you're telling the truth, but it's sure not going to end well for you. <laughs> but that's what it's the equivalent. Yeah, I'm sure you've experienced that yourself in your own uh, um, relationships. Definitely. So do you think Canada is a lost cause? Yes. At least. And so next- everyone, so if you're not on board with where Canada is going, I think you should leave. This is what I've been recommending to people. I'm like, yeah, you should I, get I, out I, of there. I don't want to say lost cause long term, but for the next like 10 to 15 years. On the other hand, let's let's play devil's advocate. It could be Britain in 1979 where they didn't even have electricity. And you had, you know, the winter of our discontent, which was a different point in the 70s where you had garbage up to six feet tall or two meters, I guess you guys would say, in Leicester Square. And, you know, they were like, all right, we need to really uh, push the pendulum back in the complete opposite direction. So sometimes the darkest places are the ones where this is the most opportunity to fix. But in terms of Canada, it seems like there is this kind of, uh, in, in England, there was more of the sense of like, all right, like nothing's working. But in Canada, it seems to be like, we're glad this is happening and we're reveling in our you know misery and oppression and that is a very different dynamic than we suck but both the parties don't have answers and they suck too as opposed to <laughs> they're they're like like i said they're just delighted in what's happening and they see themselves I, I and please correct me if i'm wrong they kind of see themselves as leaders that we're kind of paving the way forward as opposed to those kind of hick uh, stupid Americans who are ostensibly better than us, but we know better than them. So there's this Canada always had this kind of passive aggressive uh, snobbery. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you push Canadians enough, the mass drops and it comes out. So that is, I think, is a cultural problem in terms of turning the ship around. Yeah, no, you're correct. Um, Canada thinks that everyone else is jealous of them and also that they're better. You know, they're more evolved than everyone else. Yeah. Particularly Americans. Yes. Um, and I mean, I think part of the problem in Canada, I think is that they, most of these people think that they're okay and that they're doing well and that they're comfortable to me, they seem all depressed, but I don't think that they really realize that they're depressed. I can just tell because I left and I feel much happier here. And when I talk to them, they're so, they're, you know, they're apathetic. Or enthusiastic. They don't seem passionate about anything. But no, they're, I, I mean, what are you going to do? Be a racist? Like, those are the two choices, right? You be double down or be a racist. And it, in those terms, it's not that hard of a choice. Yeah. But I mean, do you think that, it, do you think that things have to get a lot more uncomfortable to sort of shake them out of their slumber? I don't know what it will take because there is such a, and this wasn't the case in Great Britain in the 70s, there's such a, collusion and this is something that lefties historically have been really good at there's such a collusion between media elites and government elites uh and 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 cultural commentators in canada to create this kind of um uh, false consensus that they've really done a great job of creating this kind of narrow window of where acceptable opinion lies so i don't know what it would take to break that and also uh, with the COVID stuff I think a lot of high profile, like they, it, there's no question in my mind that they want to do whatever they can to drive Jordan and people who think or high status people like him to drive them out of Canada. 
to be mm-hmm. like, we don't want you here. We're going to do whatever we can to make it as uncomfortable for you as possible. Gad said, I don't know if you know him, I think for his last book, because of how he did it, they took all his money. Right, um, I heard that. You know, yeah. And it's just like, okay, at a certain point, you're going to be like, okay, you, I can't win. You know, I, I can't win against if you're you're very consciously and intentionally structuring things, this kind of drip, drip, drip to make it a completely unacceptable uh, society for me, no matter how much I love, might otherwise love the country. Yeah. And then they could also pat, that's the other thing, the incentives are then Justin Trudeau gets to pat himself on the back and be like, I'm the guy who beat Jordan Peterson. So he yeah. gets his lefty accolades there. Well, and they do, they literally say that. I mean, they say it to me. It's like, well, then leave. I'm like, well, I did leave, but right. got right. it. You know, yeah. like if you don't, it's, you know, if you don't like it here, then leave. Yeah. Okay. Um. I mean, yeah, I, I feel, I feel sad for these people, but also they are doing it to themselves and they be, so many of them did. It's hard for me to, it's hard for me to forgive what I saw happen over COVID. Don't ever and I forgive. Remember, Why would you okay. ever forgive them? I said no forgiveness. And then I, Rogan was like, oh, you got to forgive. And I was like, I don't you can't, think I'm sorry. I, I okay, want here's to, the thing. or I don't okay. think I should. <laughs> let's, let's suppose like you and I were dating and I cheated on you. Right. So, yeah. and I felt bad about, it. there's two scenarios. One is I really screwed up and I do feel bad and it's appropriate for you to accept my apology and move forward. Or I'm just telling you what I want you to hear and I'm going to do it again. Maybe I mean at the moment, right? You can't forgive someone who hasn't apologized. Like you can't forgive someone who's like, you know what? I really screwed this up. I had a great opportunity with a wonderful girl and I put on the line for what? Like, this is so stupid of me. I'm so, so sorry. Please give me, sorry. Uh, please give me another chance. And like, you can see that situation, the person would mean it, but there's no apology. Yeah. If the if this happened again today, they would be twice as bad as what they were before. So how can you forgive them if it's the same exact setup? It's a good analogy because for me, so much of the issue is about trust. And I was like, well, yes. I can't trust these people. Yes, they won't even you, acknowledge you can, you can, what you happened. Can tr- you can trust them to do the exact same thing, but worse. Right. There's okay. not even a question. In fact, there was that article in the Atlantic and that girl had to, you know, she, I, I, I ratioed the hell out of her. And she had to like, I think went private where there's an article, I think it was the Atlantic where she's like, it's time for COVID forgiveness. But she meant forgiving people who didn't get vaccinated for their obstinacy. <laughs> I read that. Yeah, I responded to that also. And so that's when I was like, like no, no, this no. is why we can't forgive these people. I'm and then sorry. I thought, am I just being a jerk? Like, I'm sorry if grandma can't see her grandkids in the nursing home, if I can't have a funeral for my family, no. if I can't visit someone in the hospital on their deathbed, I'm not forgiving you. No, it's evil. Yes. If you can't go to worship and you're pulling me out of my place of worship, are you insane? Forgiveness? That's well, yeah, and lock people up in their homes. Yeah, not let them see family members, not let them visit with people who are isolated in care homes and dying. Like it's torture, it's cruel, and it's totally inhumane. And And it's irrational. Yeah. Okay, so the question that I did want to ask you is so, okay, so so communism is a bad system. is you know what's a better system well any pretty much than communism um i you know i'm an anarchist but again i don't think you need to be an anarchist to recognize the dangers and costs of any totalitarian dictatorship whether it's communism or fascist or some other variant but you would say that capitalism is a better system 
Well, yeah, I think that's kind of indisputable. But it, I, I also don't love that word because capitalism means two very different things. Capitalism means like a free enterprise system where people own property and they're allowed to kind of achieve what they want to on the free market to the best of their ability. But it also means in the Marxist sense, collusion between corporations and the government to maintain and hold power, right? So in that sense, capitalism really is, you know, horrifically bad. So I, I the term really has to, I, I try to avoid it recently as much as I can because it has two very, and the, then the people are like, oh, that's not capitalism, it's corporatism. Well, capitalism kind of originally did mean corporatism. So a lot of times when lefties use capitalism, they don't mean like, okay, I'm going to open a t-shirt store or something on Etsy and you know I'm a single mom and I have a hair braiding business. They do mean Goldman Sachs and the government working together to screw over uh, the middle class and the lower class. And in that case, they're correct to absolutely have contempt for it. Right. I'm when curious. you were a lefty, like a hardcore yeah. lefty, and used the term capitalism, what, how would you have defined it? Or what did it mean to you? Well, I think that my problem with capitalism is that it would inevitably lead to corporatism. So I, right. I just thought that it would, there was no way that it wasn't going to get out of hand and that it wasn't going to lead to exploitation. And, and I don't think that that's a crazy um, idea. And I think it's very, I think it's needless. I, I don't like defending that term because you could see it all the time, you know, like, you know, the government and Twitter working hand in hand or, yeah. or, or all these different, or, you know, the banks, you know, deplatforming people. It's, it, you don't, they didn't, a lot of these um, evil corporations, unlike the libertarian critique, they don't need the government to call them up and be like, hey, we want you to take care of this person. They're usually the, the, the ones doing it first and then the government follows. Right. Now, I'm not saying it should necessarily be illegal, but I'm saying this claim that, well, it's the free market, so there's no problem here. I, I, I think that's fallacious, even though you know the argument is, and I think that's true, that's not really a free market, but yeah. But the point still remains. So do you think that we're all kind of screwed because of our dependence on social media? I mean, we're all dependent no. essentially on corporations to... No, I think social media is what's going to save us. Oh, okay, I'm really glad to hear that because I've been really worried. <laughs> no, no, social media is the best thing ever because there's an enormous asymmetry between truths and lies, right? So if you and I are good friends and I tell you a thousand truths and one lie, that lie, especially if it's a big lie, is going to be as much powerful as all those truths, right? So if you have the New York Times and me and we have equal clout there and all it takes is me, it, it's there for every individual. At first, you're like, it's a mistake. Okay, it's a mistake. Okay, they're sloppy. Okay, they're dumb. At a certain point, it's there for every individual, and some will never get there, but who cares about them? They're irrelevant. You'd be like, oh, you, you, these people, you, you can't be making the same mistake 20 times. At a certain point, this is intentional and a lie. And once that happens, you can't unring that bell. And social media is what allows this to happen. A very easy example of this is you had so many um, stories of reporters wearing masks you know, with their mic, oh, COVID here. And as, and as soon as the um, uh, report was done, they take the mask off. But every asshole with the cell phone, which is all of us, was right there. And that footage of him being dishonest was on Twitter before his report hit the, hit the news station. And as soon as you see that once, you're like, okay, this is a charade. And yeah. I think that, again, you don't have to have any Republican, Democrat, NDP, whatever you want, a Green Party. Once you see that, you're realizing, okay, something here is happening that's not what it's claimed to be. And once that thought is in your head, you can't, you can't go back. I mean, I suppose what I'm, my concern is, or one of my concerns is with regard to the fact that, 
you know, I'm working on social media in many ways because I'm independent and I like being independent and I plan to stay independent forever. But that means that I'm dependent on these platforms that are controlled sure. by corporations and that can sure. sort of change at a win. You know, Twitter is good right now. I'm allowed back on Twitter. Yep. We have free speech on Twitter. But YouTube sucks because they've sure. shadow banned me and Facebook sure. shadow banned me. And that can just change on a dime. Sure. And we don't really have control over that. Yeah, but again, the fact that YouTube ex exists is a huge step forward to what it was before where you had, what, five networks? Mm. And once you if you can't be on those five networks, you're you're you don't exist, right? right? So now it's infinite networks, and it's not ideal. But I, you know, it's like Thomas all talks about: there's no solutions, there's only trade-offs. So yeah, it's not ideal, and you still have to be at the mercy of these corporations, so to some extent. But in terms of where it was 20 years ago, I rem you know I it used to be a joke, and I'm a little older than you. People like, oh, if you don't like it, make your own website, and it was regarded as an absurdity because the idea that you and I I don't know your technical skills. I'm guessing it's similar to mine. The idea that you or I can make our own website is like, okay. I, I, it's easier for me to build a <laughs> nuclear I? reactor, right? Yeah, yeah. And now, how many, what, Squarespace? How many, there's like infinite websites where you can make your own website in like under 20 minutes with having no technical knowledge. So yeah. I think that sort of thing is showing how it's going to be harder and harder for centralized control to maintain its hegemony. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Are you, you're, you're an optimist then? Uh, no, but I'm hopeful and I'm hopeful based on specific reasons and facts, not because I think human beings are basically good or, you know, good always wins over evil, but these are tools that have in the past been successful. Uh, like in the Soviet Union, you know, data where people were just secretly Xeroxing things. It's really, really hard to have a monopoly of information when everyone has a smartphone. It's like, you can't do it. Um, and I think it's, that's the difference between like things like World War II and atrocities in the past, the, the, the starvation, the Ukrainians in the thirties, when there's no footage, it's really hard to wrap your head around it, right? Let, let's suppose you were, you were, you had a violent relationship and if you're sitting there, tell me, oh, he beat you, he did so on and so forth. That's one thing. But then seeing the footage of you being assaulted by your partner, that's a very different situation because now it's like, oh crap, this isn't just like her telling me a narrative. I'm seeing it and it hits me, you know, right in my heart. So the fact that right now, instead of having to be like, oh, I, you know, like in a, even in a court case, like instead of like, oh, I saw him do this, it's like, here's the video. And when people can see police cams is another great example where for a long time, oh, cops would never do this, so on and so forth. And now it's like, here's the cam. Sometimes it exonerates the cops where you could like you could see for yourself mm -hmm. and something you could be like, yeah, this cop was acting completely inappropriate and they're going to hopefully get disciplined or fired. Probably not. But the point is, me as a viewer can be like, OK, this person wasn't just some kind of asshole complaining about the police being inappropriate. I can see it with my own eyes. Right. Um, I'm going to let you go soon. It's been over an hour. I'm okay. I'm 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 wondering how long it took you to write. Your book, your most recent uh, book. It was like two and a half years. It was a nightmare. Yeah. I just like, I couldn't believe how much, I mean, there's so much information in it. And I just, I mean, I just thought it that was, must have it taken was, you it was, it time. was like an exorcism. Um, Cause I had to, you know, live through the, these, all these souls who had things done to them, which are just so horrific. Um, but it's like, it's my job as a writer to make sure they're not forgotten insofar as I'm able. Uh-huh. Why did you decide to take that on? Because I, I, first of all, being born in the Soviet Union, I was like, the fact that this is being kind of forgotten, even though this happened in our lifetime, is completely crazy. 
Second, and I thought these people, what happened to these people mattered enormously. But it also spoke to why I'm so hopeful about the future of, of the West. And for those of us who believe in human dignity, it's like, I'm not saying that just some kind of cheerleader Pollyanna, like people who are far worse up against enemies who are far more entrenched and far more evil, won relatively quickly and relatively painlessly. So I wanted to explain why my view of hope isn't just based on some kind of, I get I get accused of being, um, Michael Malice gets accused of thinking human beings are basically good or you don't you don't think people are evil. It's like, okay, uh, I've been to North Korea. I know a little bit about the evils that human beings are capable of, but the good guys did win. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, 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 it is impressive um, that you would get through all of that history and come out. I mean, you just said you weren't an optimist, but I think, it sounds like you are a bit of an optimist. Well, I think hope and optimism aren't the same thing. Fair. <laughs> like, I'm not optimistic about Canada, although I am yeah. hopeful, but I'm not optimistic. I can't, if I'm playing roulette, I'm not putting, I'm putting very little money on things getting better in the next 15 years. But again, the, as I show in the white pill, there's story after story of people being like, oh, it's not going to get better for a long time. And then it gets better literally the next day. So I hope right. to be proven wrong, but I don't, I don't see a trajectory. No, I mean, I just, I just think that people in ca Canada are too passive. I mean, what happened with the the truckers that with the Freedom Convoy? I was shocked. I never, never would have thought that would happen in Canada. So it was great. I was really like excited and inspired by that. But the fact that you know so many people are still exactly where they were before all that again, they they vilified all these people. They think that what the government did would, was fine. They think that you know, if it comes Not just back fine. again, yep. yeah, they were saving lives. Yep. Um, they still think that people like me are anti-vaxxers and dangerous and yeah. stupid and yeah. bigoted. Yeah, and you know, and they'll be they'll be fully on board with every kind of like anti-hate speech law that Justin right. Trudeau pushes through. Um, they were on board with his online, you know, mm -hmm. regulation bill. They will be on board with his electric vehicle mandates because he's saving the environment and right. they won't question any of it. And they don't, I mean, they fundamentally, Canadians fundamentally do not value free speech. They don't. Right. Right. So... I mean, they're going to be in trouble no matter what with that. And, and, and if I have nothing to say, why would I want free speech when I could have safety? At least right. I'm getting something out of it, right? I mean, so it's not an irrational uh, perspective from those type of people. Yeah, fair enough. Um, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like I can just ask for your opinion about almost anything and I'll be surprised and have um, some kind of, I'll be challenged in some way. Well, 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 I'm, I'm glad I, I was um, challenging, uh, challenging. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a euphemism. How? Oh, so I heard you interviewed uh, Megan for the job. How was she? Um, she was challenging. Oh, <laughs> that bad, huh? Yeah, challenging. It was a really challenging interview. <laughs> I mean, that's how I would imagine that all of my ex-boyfriends would describe me in exactly that way. <laughs> no, you, you would be so lucky if challenging was what they settled on. <laughs> that was, that's what they would say 10 years after the fact they'd be like yeah. oh she was a little challenging <laughs> maybe not a year or two after the fact but yeah, upon yeah. reflection she was yeah. challenging <laughs> well thank you so much i enjoyed it
Yeah, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. I hope to to talk to you again or or meet you in person someday next time I would in love Texas. That. Okay. Take care. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. This allows you access to special content, early access to episodes, exclusive access to full videos that are not available on YouTube, and the opportunity to submit questions to select future guests ahead of interviews and streams. Plus, you can DM me to your heart's content and I will reply. Another great way to follow and support my work is by becoming a paid subscriber on Substack at www.meganmurphy.ca. This ensures you don't miss a single episode, and you can also engage with the comment section, access my periodic newsletters, and read Substack-only articles. You can also support this podcast directly on Spotify by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and rely entirely on individual donors to sustain my work. This is all me and you, the listener. If you enjoy the same drugs, please consider signing up on Patreon, subscribing on Substack, or donating directly to support this podcast via PayPal at paypal.me slash the same drugs. Every little bit counts and ensures I can stay independent. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.